So, Father, just bless us, speak to us, guide us in your word. One more time, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you turn to your neighbor and tell them, happy Sunday night. (laughs) Happy Sunday night to you. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 18. We'll be looking at King Hezekiah's life, 2 Kings chapter 18. Um, I asked for prayer this morning. Our high schoolers were traveling back from the retreat, and they made it safe and sound. I understand everything went very well. Also, our couple's um, dinner that is going to be February 17th. It's our Valentine's dinner. We have over 30 couples that have signed up, and that's been a blessing If you still want to go, men, we are recording, right, Richard? We're still recording tonight. We're recording the testimonies. If the men would, any men here would like to do that tonight, just see Richard, let him know, and we'll get that recorded. We have quite a a few recordings, and so that was a blessing. And just a one-minute, just love message to your wife is all it's meant to be. 2 Kings chapter 18. Well, we saw last week, basically, we'll look at a few verses tonight, verses 9 through 12, but we'll be looking at the last of the northern kingdom of Israel. Keeping in mind, at this time, Israel is divided into two kingdoms, which was never God's intent. There was a northern kingdom that had ten tribes of Israel. There was the southern kingdom that had two tribes. That would be Judah and Benjamin. And so we've been looking at a series of kings, and a lot of their rules would overlap with one another. But we would look at the era of that particular king and see what the Lord was doing in Israel at that time. Last week we saw King Hoshea. Hoshea was the last of the northern kingdom's kings. Assyria had come in. Well, last week we saw where God used Assyria to defeat the northern kingdom and to disperse them. Never again will the northern kingdom be seen as the inhabitants of Israel. Never again as they were before. These are ten tribes because of their disobedience to God and we'll see their disobedience of God came about because they refused to listen and do the word of God. Well, they have been cast to the wind because of their sin, because of the refusal of the Lord, and we will not see them again until Revelation chapter 7, until God seals the 144,000. So these tribes would be referred to as the lost tribes of Israel. In God's sight, nobody ever gets lost. He knows those who are his Although we see because Assyria came in and conquered them and took them captive, no longer would they exist how they had done so previously. Always keeping in mind, which we must keep in mind as well, that the land was the Lord's. And just as surely as he allowed Israel to live there for his glory, 
he also evicted them when it came time because of their disobedience. Those who are going to Israel in a month and a couple of weeks will be looking at that land, that promised land that God gave to Israel and God has kept Israel in. Now, last week we closed with Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, the name literally means the second giving, the second giving of the law. Before Israel entered in, God gave them a warning. Now, in the warning that God gave, it's important to see that the choice was there. There's some that say man has no choice. Well, the Bible is sprinkled throughout with choices that man was to make. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 19 through 20, God says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, and God says this to his people, choose life. Choose life that both you and your descendants may live that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days, that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to them. God commanded them that they were not to live their lives as the inhabitants of the land who he was expelling, but they did. The northern kingdom in over a hundred years, the southern kingdom would be expelled for a period of time as well. But again, God gave them a choice. God gave them his word. We just saw in Deuteronomy, your Deuteronomy is their Deuteronomy, and they had that warning, but they chose to ignore it. God then raised his voice by the sending of a prophet, warning them what was going to come. Nonetheless, they chose to ignore. He would bring nations into the land to conquer them or at least to threaten them, and God would deliver them as a warning, but they chose to ignore the warning. So for the rest of our studies in 2 Kings, some seven chapters, we'll be looking at 136 years of the reigns of seven kings. This will lead us to the Babylonian dispersion of Judah, or the southern kingdom of Judah. So in chapter 18 of 2 Kings, verses 1 through 3, it says, Now it came to pass in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. So once again, there's that overlapping of rules between the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. They're used to set the time frame. Verse 2, he, Hezekiah, was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abai, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had. Obviously, David was not his actual father, but he was a descendant in the line of David. So Israel is about to go, and Ahaz, king of Judah, has died. And now this his 25-year-old son, this 25-year-old man, Hezekiah, he's on the throne ruling the nation. He's got the responsibility of God's people, and we're going to see that this is a man who is imperfect, as we all are, and even as his father David was, very imperfect man, but he had a heart that beat for the Lord. Again, Acts chapter 13, verse 22, David is described by God as a man after my own heart. Well, as we look at Hezekiah, Hezekiah is going to be a man after God's own heart as well. And we'll see some parallels between Hezekiah and between King David. 
So about this time, around this time, it's 715 B.C., and again, we see that Hezekiah is going to rule for some 29 years. The name Hezekiah means the Lord strengthens. So it was not, though, just because of his name that Hezekiah was strengthened. What was it that caused the Lord to be with him? Well, as we see here, Hezekiah chose to do what was right in the sight of God. And so we've looked at this time and time again, both in our study in um, Jeremiah and then here in 2 Kings, we see it in Deuteronomy chapter 17, when the king went to the throne. And this is essential because the word of God is what was to be to rule God's people. And so the king, when he assumed the throne, he was to sit down and he was to write out the law because he was going to be responsible in the sight of the people, but most of all, in the sight of God, to rule the people as God desired for them to rule. So Hezekiah would know what was right in the sight of God, because again, the same word of God that you are holding on your lap right now, they had as well. And so man... Man makes the choice to follow God or to follow his own ways. Only one way is going to bring about the blessings of God. So it's the same reason. That's why we sit in Bible study after Bible study once again. You don't need to know the way of myself. You don't need to know your own way. You need to know the way of God. And the things we read about need to be the things that we do. So what follows, what we have here in the first part of the chapter 18 is one of those little lists of a man's actions who did what was right in the sight of God. It's not, in these lists that we go through, these points that I give, are never all inclusive. There's always so much more. But we're going to look at the example of Hezekiah and what would cause the Holy Spirit to describe him as a man who does what is right in the sight of God. Out of 20-some kings of the southern kingdom, there were only, I believe it was eight, who did what was right in the sight of God. Of the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel, none of them did what was right in the sight of God. And notice, at this point, there is going to be no northern kingdom any longer. So number one, a person who does right in God's sight maintains the purity of worship. Maintains the purity of worship. Of worship, I would say maintaining the purity of the word of God, and this would join together with that. But the example used is the purity of worship. We see this in verse 4. He, Hezekiah, he removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Natushtan. I just like to say Natushtan. But that's what they call it, a thing of brass. We saw that this is where other good kings before Hezekiah fell short. A lot of the ones that were described as being good kings allowed those high places to remain. They didn't remove them, and the people sacrificed and burnt incense there. They would be worshiping false gods there, but they would also falsely be falsely worshiping the true God there. Now, again, we've looked at this before. High places were how the people of the land worshiped God. You could take this all the way back to the Tower of Babel. They're of the mindset that we'll build something that reaches up into the heavens. And the idea, or at least the mindset, is man reaching to God through his own power. Well, because we were powerless when the fulfillment of time, 
when we were without hope, God sent the Savior to us. But this, the idea is man trying to reach up to God through his own ability. Now they would worship false gods there, and that was a big part of what was wrong. It says he removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars and cut down the wooden image. Some of these things were very obscene, and so they were of the flesh, but in actuality they were all of the devil. Now they also falsely worshiped the true God there. They did worship God on these high places, but God commanded them to not worship him there. He says, you will worship me, and I'll read the the proof text in a minute, you will worship me in a place of my own choosing. And so God directed Israel to that place that we know to be Jerusalem and the temple that existed there. The Jews were to make pilgrimages there. It was the only place that they were to offer sacrifice. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 5 through 6, again, that instruction before they enter into the promised land says, but you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all of your tribes, so out of all 12 tribes, God's going to choose a place to put his name for his dwelling place, and there you shall go. There you shall take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offering of your hand, your vowed, offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. This is what was necessary to worship God how God desires to be worshipped. It's the purity of the worship of the Lord. And again, it's something that we need to keep in mind because man always regresses to how he believes God should be worshipped or at least what is convenient for us or even what is pleasing to us. And this intermingling of the ways of the world and the worship of the Lord, we see it today. Now, there, the example is sacrifice. But today, I think, when we speak of worship, we would think of song, and we can look at that. Today's Christian music, so much of it, it's presented as worship, but it's not worship. A lot of it, a lot of it is just simply entertainment. I was speaking to a, I was in a meeting, and there was a well-known well, Holland Davis was there. He's a well-known. He wrote uh, Let It Rise, Let the Glory of the Lord Let It Rise. Um, and he was saying there's only, I think he said there's only one record label now, or whatever record might be, uh, MP3 label, uh, only one label now that is completely run by Christians. All the others are run secularly. secularly. And so what is their intent? Their intent is to sell record or CDs or MP3s, whatever it is that we listen to nowadays. But that's their intent. And so what they're going to do is give the people what they want. But what is true worship? It's us giving God what God desires. It's the expression of our heart based upon... Now, I'm not caught up in the genre of music. That doesn't matter. We're not told what you know genre of music. But it is to be a place of worship that, that, that starts from the seed of our soul and extends to the heaven with the knowledge of the attributes of God and all that, or how God has used those attributes to minister to us. It's a recognition of the glory of God that causes us to break forth in worship. It's not about singing what we're going to do, what we have done. I've heard songs that are about sin. I mean, they're not talking about committing sin, but sin committed. And is that really worship of God? Now, I'm not saying that all Christian entertainment is bad. It's not. I don't have a problem listening to whatever Christian song that might be, as long as, again, it's not contrary to God's word. But worship is to be kept 
pure. I met with Paul and Joanne, and they went through a lot of the songs that weren't really focused on the Lord. Some of the songs that we got rid of weren't bad songs, but they weren't really worship songs. And we don't want to defile the worship of God with that which is of the world, or that does not recognize who he is, well, basically his holiness. His worship is done as we bask in the holiness of God. Most what is called worship today is designed to strike emotion for profit rather than devotion to the Lord. And so we need to go through and we need to recognize these things. What is true worship? What might just be entertainment? And again, I'm not saying anything bad about Christian entertainment. I'd rather you be entertained by Christian entertainment than anything else. But our worship is to be kept holy. Just as it was back then, God says, I want to be worshipped. The sacrifice will be offered in the place of my choosing. In essence, what he's saying is, you will do it my way and through an obedient heart his people do. Now, Second Chronicles 29, which we're not going to go into tonight, goes into more detail, but Hezekiah set about for a thorough cleansing process. He's cleansing the temple, he's cleansing the city, he's cleansing the people's heart. Because if you remember, his father Ahaz was a man who did evil in the sight of the Lord. In Second Kings chapter 16, verses 14 through 16, it reads, He also brought the bronze altar which was before the Lord from the front of the temple, from between the new altar and the house of the Lord, and put it on the north side of the new altar. He had an altar built that resembled not the plan that God gave for that altar, but Assyria's altar. And he came in and he set God's altar aside and put man's altar at the forefront. Then King uh, Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, saying, On the great new altar, burn the morning offerings. And he goes through the listing of what he wanted burnt there. Now, God gave detailed instructions to Moses on what these things were to look like and how they were going to be built. Why? Because the tabernacle, which think of the tabernacle as kind of a portable temple when they were in the wilderness, the tabernacle and the furniture were to mimic what was in the dwelling place of heaven. And it's when they built all these things and they presented it to the Lord and the glory of God filled that tabernacle. They knew it was acceptable before the Lord. And now that which is unacceptable, at least in chapter 16 with King Ahaz, has come into the temple. Hezekiah understands this is wrong because he's got a copy of Exodus. And he realizes the necessity of doing things the way God says they need to be done. Now it even goes a little bit deeper. Hezekiah, he, he, he understood that not only is it this worldly things and things of the flesh, but also the improper use of what at one time at least was biblical, this natushtan, this thing of bronze, the last part of verse 4, um, cut down the wooden images and broken pieces of the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the children of Israel burnt incense to it, that means they worshipped it, or at least worshipped before it, and called it natushtan. Somebody kept the bronze serpent from the wilderness days, from Israel's days as they were wandering through the wilderness. Israel had sinned against God and there was a great plague of snakes that were going amongst them. People were being killed and they died. And then in Numbers 21 verses 8 through 9, And then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten 
when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and so it was, if a serpent bit anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. And so this is a point of obedience at that particular point. Nowhere does it say to worship it or worship before it. And so you get bit by a snake is all you have to do is look upon it. Now, I can imagine there had to be people who refused to do that. They got bit by the snake, and I'm just not going to look at it. If they did that, they died. But those who did look, lived. But the problem is they now are looking to the icon and not through the icon and to the Lord. And it's something that we've got to be very careful about. Even Calvary chapels, we have it behind us. We have the Calvary Chapel dove. That's just a reminder that the Holy Spirit sets upon the church, and the church is to exercise spiritual giftings and conduct ourselves according to the power of the Holy Spirit. But we don't bow down before it. We don't worship before it. It's just there for a reminder. And so we've got to keep these things in proper perspective. That's why we have no other icons or images, because we've seen how traditionally and how historically these things start to become regarded as holy, and then man comes and he kneels down before it, and in his mindset, even if the best-case scenario, he's still praying before God, but just having to need that particular image, it's something that is placed in between them and the relationship with the Lord. Chuck Smith said, when a man's faith fails, he starts looking to a work of his hands, something that catches his eye, no longer trusting in what he cannot see. And so that is something that we have to be very careful of. This Natushtan had become an idol. And because it became an idol, we see where Hezekiah had it destroyed. Now remember the Lord Jesus Christ and the woman at the well? He gave some very specific instructions when it came to true worship. In John 4, verses 23 through 24, Jesus is saying, But the hour is coming, and now is. When the true worshipers, because there was this little debate, should we be worshiping at Jerusalem? And this woman would be saying, no, we should be worshiping in Samaria. But when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, spirit here is not referring to the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit does fill us for the purpose of worship. There's no doubt about it. You must be spirit-filled. But the idea is, is your personality. The idea is you must be invested into the worship. And it doesn't matter who is up here on the stage, and it doesn't matter what the song is or, again, the genre of the song or whatever it might be. You need to come with the mindset and the heart that I'm worshiping the Lord. Now, you can worship the Lord at any time and any place. But at the beginning of service, that's a time that we know is set apart for the worship of the Lord. Do you come prepared to worship the Lord when you're coming to church? Do you think about it when you're on your way? Are you preparing yourself, setting aside the things of your day? I mean, looking at specifically our midweek service, you've been to work or you've been about your busy day. Are you looking forward to that time that you're able to enter into the sanctuary, be amongst God's people? And just have an understanding that this is an opening of our heart before our holy God. Just again, just to, to sing that song. There's just something so special about singing songs. And, and, and I believe it's something that is truly ordained by God. 
I see it in my young grandchildren today, just so early, and just them wanting to sing out, and just myself, and, 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 and just all of us, just having that desire to, to sing out. And there's just something special and freeing about that. Why? Because song and singing has been, it's been established by God for the purpose of worshiping Him. And we need to see how special that is. And so spirit, as far as my personality, I need to prepare myself when it comes to that opportunity to worship God. And also you worship in spirit, but also truth. Worship is to be built upon the word of God. The word is truth. The Holy Spirit, thy spirit is truth. And Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And so that's the way that I truly can worship God wherever I'm at in the midst of the congregation or out by myself, wherever it might be. But as far as things, as far as stuff, even as far as having a worship band and all of those things, it's not necessary. I just need to bring my heart and understand that my worship must be that which is acceptable before my holy God. Secondly, a person who is right in God's sight, he trusts in the Lord. Verse 5. And he, Hezekiah, trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was none like him amongst all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. Now, again, have this Hezekiah being equated to David. It's not saying necessarily um, it was greater than David was, but he's talking more than likely recent history and then post-history. But again, the thing that set him apart, well, we're told here is, is that he trusted in the Lord. Are you able to trust in the Lord? The way we trust in the Lord, again, is through his word. We're going to see here in just a few verses that he didn't trust in the Lord for a period of time. Again, nobody is perfect, but what set him aside from everybody else, that he had a trust for the Lord that went deeper than anybody else. Now, this is to place the will of God over what may seem to be right at the time may seem to make sense, but what is the will of God? Again, he understands the will of God because he knows the word of God. And as he knows the word of God, he is to set the will of God above everything else, even his own understanding. And this needs to extend into all areas of our lives. As we go through our lives, trials and tribulations come. Things happen that don't really make sense. And as things seem to be spiraling out of control, again, as Chuck Smith once said, when things are happening that you don't understand, you cling to that which you do understand. And sometimes the only thing that you know that you need to do is to hold on to Jesus and have him carry you through. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, it says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. That means to have a deep-seated trust of God. And it says, and lean not on your own understanding. Our understanding is influenced by our sinful nature and desire for self and desire for comfort. When the trial enters in, what do we want? We all do. We want it to go away. But God wants us to allow it to have its perfect work within our lives. We're not going to understand why God is doing that. We're not going to understand the end result of what he desires to happen. But again, the thing we do need to understand is to seek the Lord out and to depend upon him. I was talking to somebody after church this morning. Their child was going through a really hard thing, just through some foolishness and some difficulties their child entered into this situation that is going to affect her for the most part for the rest of her life. And I told her, I can't tell you why this is happening. 
And I, don't, I can't tell you how it's going to end, but the one thing I can tell you is, is that you have to trust in God. And you have to continue to lift up in prayer, and you can't quit, and you can't ever stop. We will never understand all that God does and how and why he does what he does, but I do know that he is good. And I do know that trust is an outward expression of the faith that I have deep within inside of me. And as I trust in the Lord and others see of that trust, others are going to be ministered to and they're going to be prepared for the trials and tribulations that they enter in as well. And so, just like David did in a situation that made no human sense, so Hezekiah must do. So there's King David. He's seeing Israel, this is before he was king, the Goliath situation, and he sees there's no trust in this land. He understands somebody's got to stand up against that Philistine. And so, if you're going to Israel, you'll be there. You'll see the valley and you'll see the hillsides where both armies were standing. And so he goes through and in the bottom of that valley is a little riverbed. I picked up five rocks for five of my grandchildren because that's all I had at the time. I've got two more, so I need to go to Israel and bring two more rocks. And I'll probably bring a couple more rocks just in case. But... You could, he, he went into that, into that valley against that giant. Why? Because he knew who his God is. Not only did he know, he also trusted in his God. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 45 through 47, Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. So he's basically saying, you're coming to me with all the power in the world. I'm coming to you with all the power in heaven. Verse 46, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcass of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth and all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Now, you can look at this and you can think, that guy seems to be pretty arrogant. No, he was trusting in the Lord. And you could see even afterwards, because the way we know is because he gave glory to God. But it's true, he, we know the story. He defeated the Philistine and he did remove his head. The funny thing about it is he carried that head around for a week. Hey, how'd it go with the Philistine? Well, look what I got. You know, he's got this trophy, and he's just, look what God did. Because again, they were up on that hill, and they were expecting God not to do anything. And if you expect God not to do anything, then he probably won't do anything. But if you're willing to walk down that hill into that valley and trust in the living God, you'll be able to kill the giants of your life. So many of us are afraid of the giants of our life. Whatever it is that we struggle, whatever is bigger and uglier and badder than we are, but if you trust in the living God, you're able to overcome those things which cause fear into your life, just as David did. Thirdly, a person who is right in God's sight, he holds fast to the Lord. Verse 6, For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments with the, which the Lord God had commanded Moses. So this is, it speaks of an obedience to God's word. Just as Joshua was commanded not to, he didn't veer to the left, he didn't veer to the right. He continued to cut that straight path of obedience through the word of God. And as he did, God blessed him. 
The way we hold fast to the Lord is just doing what God has called you to do. Spending that intimate time with God in devotions, in his word, corporately in his word, wherever it might be, wherever it is that God speaks to men and women, and then doing what you believe that God has called you to do. Again, if you wholeheartedly go off in a wrong direction, God will direct you back to where you need to be. But if you If trust is to be in the will of God, then holding fast is to wait on the will of the Lord, but then to move in the glory of the Lord. So just as it was necessary for Hezekiah to copy that book of Moses, he also had to know it, and he also had to do it. It's not enough just to read. It's not enough just to sit in a study. You've got to know it. You've got to know what it's saying, but then you also need to do it. Now, in the book of Revelation, it's one of the only books that we are told specifically that there's a blessing there for us. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, now we're blessed whenever we're in the Word of God, don't get me wrong on that, but in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, it says, blessed is he who reads, now it doesn't just stop there, it also says, and those who hear the words, that means to gain understanding of this prophecy, and keeps those things which are written in it, for the time is near. So keep speaks to do. And so it's not just about reading, although it is. It's not just about hearing, although it is. But it's also about keeping, or it's also about doing these things. That's a person that God is with. That's a person that God blesses. And then fourthly, we see that God will be with this person who is right in his sight. Verses 7 through 8. The Lord was with him, He prospered wherever he went, and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. He has subdued the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. He was blessed in all that he did. He was seeking out the Lord. He understood that we're God's people. This is God's land. And he's going out and he's conquering and he's achieving great victories. Assyria, well, God is my God. Assyria is not my God. So he rebelled against Assyria. So if you remember, when a country either threatened a nation or came into a nation, that nation would pay tribute. Well, Hezekiah's father, Ahaz, he paid him off. And as long as he kept the payments coming, they were good. But Hezekiah understood, no, this, this is the Lord's money. These are the Lord's resources. I'm not giving them to that heathen nation. And so he stopped. And so this is back to that concept. If you are with God, then God will be with you. And so God is going to be with Hezekiah throughout this whole ordeal that is about to happen. Now, the only other king in which it is spoken of that God was with him was King David. So again, we have this man who has a heart for the Lord. And you can look at this and you can put these verses together. Verses 4 through 6 are kind of parenthetical in a way, but if you attach verses 3 through 7, it works. It says, And he did, Hezekiah did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. The Lord was with him. He prospered wherever he went. And so this is a man who's just seeking after the Lord. And as he does, God's hand of blessing is upon him and seen through him. And so what, we re- what this really means is, is that the grace of God was strong upon him in spite of who he was. Because we ought not to build him up as a perfect person. Because we'll see in a minute that the Bible does not do that. But the result of this was is that the temple was cleansed. 
it was restored once again as a place to come and worship the Lord. And once again, sin is being covered by the sacrifice. And God will honor his people because of that. Verses 9 through 12. Now it came to pass in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Salmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. And at the end of three years, they took it. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, that is the ninth year of Hoshea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken, or it fell to Assyria. Verse 11, then the king of Assyria carried Israel away captive to Assyria and put them in Hala by the harbor, the river of Gazan, and by the cities of the Medes. Because, now this is key, why did he do all this? Because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant and all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded, and they would neither hear nor do him. So again, it's centered upon God's word, their rebellion and their disobedience. They would not hear it, and they did not do it, and they would not obey it. Because of that, God cast them into captivity, and it's even worse than that. It was as if they never existed. So as Hezekiah did, Hoshea did not do. Keep in mind the difference between the judged and the saved is just a matter of God's grace, but it's also a matter of man's obedience. Hoshea, his sins were seen upon him. Hezekiah, his sins were seen upon the great faith that he had in the Lord. Us, it's seen, our sins are seen upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we're justified, seen just as if we've never sinned. In Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior towards man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And so really it boils down to this. What's the difference between the saved and unsaved? Well, the unsaved, verse 12, did not obey the voice of the Lord. And lastly, they would not hear nor do God's words. And so that is an attribute of those who do not know the Lord. They did not obey. And again, what did Jesus say? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? Those people he cast in to outer darkness. Now, the remainder of the chapter, I'm going to go ahead and read through it, but the remainder of the chapter will illustrate the difference of those who act in the flesh and those who seek after grace. Now, again, as I said earlier, in verses 13 through 16, you're going to see Hezekiah, he kind of panics. He backslides, if you will, just for a period of time. Again, our trials and the worldly situations and circumstances can at times get the best of even the best of us. And so the first thing that we have is the first invasion of Assyria against Judah. So Assyria, they've been going over these countries and they've been just gobbling them up, they've been conquering them, and now they have set their sights on Judah. It says in verse 13, In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, Shenanacharib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. So these are not Jerusalem, but the cities that are surrounding Jerusalem. Then Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, 
I have done wrong. Remember, he rebelled against him and stopped paying the tribute. He says, turn away from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will pay. And the king of Assyria assessed Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. So Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the pillars which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. And so he's kind of going back on the victories that he had achieved uh, previously. He mistakenly tries to find security in the grace of the world. It's kind of a case of as dad did, as Ahaz did, so do I. Assyria has conquered Tyre and Ashelon, Ekron, an Egyptian relief force has been defeated, and most of the prime cities of Judah have fallen to them. Matter of fact, they're almost, not quite there yet, but they will get there later on to the doorstep of Jerusalem. So instead of seeking the Lord, Hezekiah, he seeks after hopelessness. In the midst of the hopelessness of his plight, he seeks after terms with Assyria. And so he gives them what they ask. Silver is about $600,000. Gold is about $900,000. They were taken from the temple. They were taken from the place of God and given to the world. Those who search out such things have found Assyrian records that tell us there were three other demands that were made. Apparently they were met. I'm not sure, though. One was a ter territorial concession. What did they want? They wanted certain areas of the land. But the thing about it is that land was not Hezekiah's to give. The land belonged to the Lord. Secondly, they wanted um, Hezekiah to give up a, a Assyrian vassal king. This was more than likely a king of some minor province or whatever that Judah had conquered. Could have been the Edomites or somebody along those lines. And they wanted that king back because this was really a an affront to their, their, uh, to their leadership or their superiority. And so they wanted that king back. And then thirdly, another demand, they wanted them to send two or more of Hezekiah's daughters for the king's harem. And so you want to become a slave of the world? The world will take advantage. And so not a good time right here. Moving into 17, verse 17, the second invasion towards the end of their campaign. Assyria did back off, but now Assyria decides that it wants Jerusalem anyway. And so God is bringing his people, to, and this king, to total dependency upon him. So you have this king, and this king has a heart for the Lord and the ways of the Lord, but he's not a perfect man. He enters into this trial and doesn't do well in the trial, but God is still seeking after him. And so God is going to allow hard things to enter into his life. Remember, he tried the easy way out to pay off Assyria, but God's not going to allow that. And what is he doing? As I've said before, he's just extending the length of his trial here. So here's the second invasion of Assyria, verse 17. Then the king of Assyria sent the Tartan and the Rabsaris, now, these, these titles, really, in verse 17, these titles really mean the commander-in-chief and probably the chief officer and the chief of staff. That's what these terms mean. Uh, mean. The king of Assyria sent the Tartan, the Rabsaris, and the Rabshakeh from Lachish with a great army against Jerusalem to King Hezekiah. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. When they had come up, they went and stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool, which was on the highway to the Fuller's field. 
So the king of Assyria decides that he wants Jerusalem, and so he sent this delegation to go and to make terms for surrender, really make threats for the purpose of surrender. Assyria was smart. If they didn't have to fight, they would subdue other kingdoms by fear, and that was the idea here. Verse 18, And when they had called to the king, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to them. So Hezekiah is sending his delegation out to meet them. Verse 9, Then Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this in which you trust? What in the world are you doing here? And what you're going to see is a series of threats here. Keep it in mind their agenda. Verse 20, You speak of having plans and power for war, but they are mere words. And whom do you trust that you rebel against me? He's thinking, now these guys have a little bit improper perspective because they don't understand the living God. But are you going to trust in the plans and the schemes that you're thinking you're going to be able to come up against us? Verse 21, now look, you are trusting in the staff of the broken reed, Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. Don't trust in these other nations coming to your, 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 your rescue. If you lean on that staff, it's going to break, it's weak, and you'll end up being worse off than you were before. Verse 22, but if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God. So this man, we'll see, is speaking Hebrew. He probably understands the Jewish culture. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Well, he doesn't understand God's word. And so he's thinking that Hezekiah did something bad in taking down those high places. And there could have been a lot of people who were in the area of Judah who were upset because Hezekiah did. But really, this man thinks that Hezekiah has insulted God. Verse 23, Now therefore I urge you, give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses, if you are able on your part to put riders on them. Again, he's mocking them. How then will you repel one captain of the least of my master's servants and put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Have I now come up without the Lord against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Now he's flat out lying. Verse 26, then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, Shebna the, and uh, Joah, the son of, uh, sorry, then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, Shebna, and Joah said to Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it, and do not speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. So they were worried about the spirit of the people who stood upon the wall. Verse 27, But Rabshakeh said to them, Has my master sent me to your master and to you to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall, who will eat and drink their own waste with you? Then Rabshakeh stood and called out with a loud voice in Hebrew and spoke, saying, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you from his hand. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. And do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make peace with me by a present and come out to me, and now, again, more deception. 
and every one of you eat from his own vine and every one from his own fig tree and every one of you drink the waters from his own cistern. If you guys come out and surrender, I'll let you go back to your homes and I'll let you partake of, of what you've grown and all of these things. In verse 32, he says, until, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and a new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive groves and honey, that you may live and not die, but do not listen to Hezekiah, at least he persuade you, saying, the Lord will deliver us. Well, they knew what Assyria did, so this man making these promises, come out and enjoy your home, they knew they were going to take him away, but he's saying, in essence, I'll bring you to a land of milk and honey. Well, they've already gotten that promise, and they've gotten that promise for God, from God, and they need to stand strong. During these times, again, they don't understand all that's going on. How could this happen to us? Just stand strong in the promises of the Lord. Verse 33, Has any of the gods of the nations at all delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Well, that's the truth. They haven't because those gods don't exist. Verse 34, Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharavim and Hena and Ivan? Indeed, they delivered Samaria from my hand. Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their countries from my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? But the people held their peace and answered him not a word, for the king's command, commandment was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and Joah the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told them the words of Rabshakeh. So he's brought these words to King Hezekiah, and you see the attitude. What are we going to do? How many times have you thought, what in the world am I going to do in this situation? We'll see what he's going to do. There's going to be a great turning to the Lord. And in that turning to the Lord, there's going to be a great deliverance. How is God going to deliver? He's going to deliver supernaturally. See, God works, obviously, supernaturally, by natural means in our lives. That is why it's beyond us. And we so cut God short. We sell him short when we look to, well, our own abilities and our own strength in the midst of trials. And once again, is all we do, we go through those times, those hard times of learning to trust in God. But I guarantee you, at the very end of it, we're the better for it. Once again, I'll close with this last verse, James chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work. Why? That you may be perfect or mature and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Again, that wisdom is the wisdom God gives in the midst of trials that we would understand the will of God. Father, once again, we just thank you that you have given us this word. And Lord, we see your word in action back in the days past so that we would learn, that we would glean from it, and that we would apply it to our lives. Father, at the beginning of this week, we're entering into something new, a new work that you have for us. I pray, Father, that we would do so trusting in you and in faith, that, Lord, we would not seek according to our own understanding, but, Father, we would recognize who you are as we learn, Lord, who you are, and realize just as surely as you worked in Hezekiah's life and so many others, that, Lord, you'll work in our lives as well. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who are after your own heart and pray that you would be with us. And, Father, as you are, may we have eyes to see, 
And may we have a heart to worship you, Father, just based upon your goodness and how your promises, Lord, have you told us that you will never leave us nor forsake us. I pray that we would hold firm to these things and that we would be strong. Lord, I lift up those who have come out tonight. I pray that you would go before them. I pray that you would bless them and just be glorified, Father, through our lives, that, Lord, we would be strengthened in these evil times, that we would be able to stand strong in your word and be that witness, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please? Again, if there's anybody here that wants to go to the Valentine's Banquet on February 17th, you need to get signed up tonight. And also, if you want to record for your wife a little message, you can do that tonight as well. God bless you guys.
Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you Sunday.